This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Stephen Miner. He's a professor and director of the Contemporary History Institute at Ohio University. He's an international expert and specialist in recent Russian, Soviet, and Eastern European history. He also is an award-winning author and is working on completing his new book called The Furies Unleashed, The Soviet People at War 1941-1945. to Today we're talking about the current state of Russia and U.S. relations, and especially the relationship between President Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Dr. Miner, we've uh, talked before, but I I want to revisit the whole situation between the U.S. and Russia and and the election uh, tampering, or at least the allegations uh, of that. And and let's put this in really contemporary uh, context. Uh, Over the weekend, President Trump met with uh, Vladimir Putin, albeit uh, casually, at, at uh, a conference in, in Vietnam. Uh, and then in a press conference on his airplane, said that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, seemed insulted by the investigation of Russia interfering with the elections and his quote was, the president's quote was, he just, every time he sees me referring to Putin, he says, I didn't do that. And I believe, I really believe that when he tells me and that he, he means it. But he says, I didn't do that. I think he's very insulted by it if you want to know the truth. People saw that as a uh, certainly a slam on U.S. Uh, intelligence. He even went on to call the Russian investigation an artificial democratic hit job, uh, and he called the director of national intelligence, former director of national intelligence James Clapper, and former CIA director John Brennan and former FBI Director James Comey, he called them political hacks. Um, People don't understand this relationship between Trump and Putin. And before we get to where we supposedly backed off of it, can can you explain this? (laughs) Thankfully, I'm not a historian of the United States. And I'm not responsible for explaining Mr. Trump, who seems to be an extraordinary character. But you can, Mr. Putin. I can try. Okay. I can try to explain Mr. Putin. Um, his, they, they do seem to have interfered in the election. 
in the American political process. And Russian interference in the American political process goes pretty far back and has at other times been far more intense than it was during the last uh, presidential election. They more or less ran a candidate with Henry Wallace back in 1948. And behind the scenes, it was largely organized by the Communist Party, something that Wallace later acknowledged and, and repented. So they've been interfering in American politics for some, some time now. Um, the involvement in, in recent times with Putin is I think, I think it's misunderstood as being only directed against Hillary Clinton. I think instead what you've got, you've got to put what, what the Russians were doing to the, in the United States in the context of what they're doing in the rest of the world, particularly the democracies, which is they're trying to interfere, to throw mud at the process, and to discredit the process, to portray what's going on in the democracies as sordid, as the the protection of selfish interests. Rigged. Rigged, exactly. And that it's, it's every bit as fraudulent as the politics that goes on in Russia. If he can, in other words, lower the level of respect, the general level of respect for democratic politics in the West, then he's on a level playing field. And he can point to his domestic critics, and there are domestic critics, and say, see, I'm actually better than what's going on over there because I don't have any pretense of being democratic. I'm, in fact, an authoritarian, but you you benefit from my authoritarianism. So he was involved in um, American politics even before the 2016 election. And uh, at a very low cost, he seems to have created a great deal of havoc in the American political system. So some, some people somewhere in Moscow are probably patting themselves on the back for a pretty wise investment. Yeah, he invested in WikiLeaks and and their activities, and he uh, invested in <laughs> Facebook, in and Facebook and Twitter, yeah. in Facebook and Twitter. But that see, in fact, that is illustrative of what I'm saying. A lot of those ads on Facebook and Twitter were directed at highlighting things like Ferguson. Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily have a, a partisan content. But what they were doing is trying to highlight the contradictions in American society and the problems in American society and sort of say, look, what's going on over there is chaos, it's racism, it's violence, it's corruption. And if he can portray the, the West, as I said, as corrupt through and through and licentious as well because, of course, he's portrayed Russia as being a defender of traditional values now, which is an extraordinary claim. Um, then if he can portray it that way, he can say, look, I, I stand for old-fashioned values, family values, even religion. <laughs> it sounds uh, like Ronald Reagan. <laughs> well, it does. And, and in interestingly a enough, a, a number of, of hard-right types have been quite attracted to Putin for that very reason because they say, well, if a confrontation comes between the West, the licentious West and, and Putin, at least he's speaking up for the godly side which is an extraordinary thing. I mean, Putin was a member of the KGB, which was itself officially atheist. Uh, he's, he's come closer to the Orthodox Church for political reasons, but um, I suspect his motives. Well, it it's, was reported uh, a week or so ago that uh, through, through Facebook they created a, uh, an organization that was anti-Muslim that mm -hmm. was supposed to have a rally in Texas, and then they went and created a pro-Muslim group that was supposed to have a counter-rally in Texas, <laughs> nobody was going to show up because these people were across the ocean who were creating this. But what they wanted to create was the fervor yes, and the yeah. furor. They've also uh, backed the secessionist movements both in California and in Texas. 
So essentially, they're just trying to throw matches onto what they think is a, a gasoline-soaked pyre. So let's circle back, though, to Trump and Putin. And I know you don't have any ins- great insight uh, into Trump, but you do have great insight in, into Putin and how he was created and, and uh, how he has evolved. It seems like to an outsider that uh, every time Putin has a chance to see Trump one-on-one, that he uh, sort of does this, poor me, uh, I'm, I'm insulted, you keep doing this, how do you expect me to help you in Syria or uh, the Ukraine or, or North Korea if you keep insulting me? And uh, knowing that Trump will take the bait and say, oh, we, we, we can't insult him anymore. The, you know, my, my people were political hacks and, 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 and forget about it. I mean, that, that, it seems like an obvious strategy, but it's one that apparently is working. It appears to be, yeah. The, uh, a part of the problem is the over-personalization of politics, international politics. Um, I, I, again, I'm not a specialist in Trump, but he seems to place a great deal of emphasis on establishing some kind of personal relationship with Mr. Putin. And uh, I don't think that's necessarily all that fruitful because Putin will say Putin will follow his interests and his interests might be served by things that are very much contradictory to our own. And if that involves deception, then I'm, I'm sure he won't stoop not to deceive. Um, the, the, this business of being outraged is, is, is silly, really. Uh, um, and you can't necessarily call him on it. I, I understand to some degree the dilemma of an American president. Put aside the fact that it's Mr. Trump. The dilemma is dealing with somebody who's sitting across the table from you and you have to do business with. We do have a number of, of areas that we have to talk to the Russians about. And, and he's sitting there and denying what is clearly obvious and what we have fairly good proof for. You can't keep hammering at that. You have to kind of move on to other areas where you might have something in common. But you don't have to necessarily credit his, his deception. You don't have to say, well, I think he believes it. How, how do you know? He certainly is saying it because it's convenient. It's, it's politic for him to deny interference in the American elections. But you don't have to go to the world and say, I think the man believes it. And, and, and Putin, from our conversations before and from what I keep reading, is an expert at, at using whatever it takes uh, to uh, verbally or otherwise to advance his personal position as well as his country's. Yeah, I, I think the, I, I said last time we were together that I thought Putin was a clever tactician. He's, he's able to take circumstances that exist at any given moment and use them to his advantage. I think he's a very poor strategist. I think that he's leading Russia into a, a cul-de-sac uh, by overspending on defense, by overextending in terms of commitments in Syria and in Ukraine elsewhere. He's, he's gotten himself into strategic dilemmas. But tactically, he's very clever. And he's very clever at using the openness of the West and the press of the West against itself. Um, he is, he is of course, uh, a judo master. Well, and and uh, as he tells everybody, <laughs> right? 
he really is uh, people attribute it to to uh, Trump and Breitbart and and Steve Bannon but but really Putin is the originator of fake news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly is the propagator of it. I don't, I, <laughs> fake, fake news has probably been around ever since we had the printing press, but you're, you're right. In, in terms of its modern iteration, he's probably the, the father of it. All right. So then a day later, or perhaps two days later, time just <laughs> keeps rolling <laughs> on in this administration, uh, Trump comes out and tries to walk back what he said a little bit and, and basically says – uh, you know, I don't know whether it's true or not, but Putin really believes that uh, his country didn't interfere. And I have to honor his belief because I have to do business with him and I don't want anything to I- interfere. Uh, that just seems uh, strange to me. Well, I, th- I think you're right. It is strange. Um as I said, if you're sitting across from somebody and you have to deal with issues such as Ukraine or North Korea and you have to deal with the Russians on these matters, then maybe it makes sense to put aside the question of interference because you're, it's just a dead end. You're not going to get Putin to admit it. You're not going to get him to do any kind of restitution clearly <laughs> and you've got to move on. But that doesn't necessarily mean, as I said, that you have to publicly announce that the man believes what clearly isn't the case. I don't think Putin believes it. I, I'm sure he denies it, but it's politic to deny it, isn't it? Why would he admit it? Let's go back in history, which is certainly your your forte, uh, to to World War II and, and Stalin and FDR. What kind of relationship did they have? Let's trace, if you could, trace presidents from that time forward, and you don't have to go through every one, but. Are we seeing something unique with Trump? Well, Trump's a unique character, I think, in American politics. I don't think we've ever had a president quite like him. Um, but, but I do think there's one similarity between Trump and many of his predecessors, including FDR. Powerful presidents arise from exploiting a certain skill set. And one of those skills, and Trump, of course, will tell you uh, that he, he possesses it in spades, is the ability to persuade people. And uh, they, they rise to prominence because they're very good at glad-handing. They're very good at managing people. They're very good at getting what they want out of other people. And they think that these – in the democratic context, these tricks or these, these skills work very well. And then the mistake arises when they think that this will travel to a non-democratic context. You had, in the case of FDR, uh, a, a president who said at one point, I can talk to Stalin because he and I use the same language. And he, he went further. He wrote to Churchill and said, uh, Stalin, and I'm quoting here, Stalin hates the guts of your foreign office people. I think he likes me better, unquote. And, and, thought, <laughs> he could, well, and thought he could use this personal element to establish a personal contact with Stalin and therefore sort of do away with his suspicions. It was fatuous. Um, there's a huge historiography on this, by the way, as to whether or not uh, Roosevelt was bamboozled by, by Stalin. I, I don't think he was. I think he, he, he pursued American national interests. But at least initially, he was rather naive about the ability to de- – or at least incomprehending about what Stalin was all about. And he, he, he came with an American context and a sort of impatience to get 
a job done, an assumption that people under the skin are pretty much the same everywhere. And they really aren't. I mean, this is the, 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 yeah. the, the fact of history is different people see the world differently and they see their interests differently. We're not all the same. Uh, you, you come to the table with very different views. And uh, I think Roosevelt was uh, perhaps wrong in, in, seeing, in initially viewing Stalin that way. Other presidents have been as well. They think that if I only establish a personal relationship with a leader, I think you saw this with, with Nixon and Brezhnev. But you certainly see it with Trump. And uh, personalities are important and they're not insignificant. I, I don't, I'm not one of these historians who says you know, the personalities are the froth on the surface of the waves. <laughs> uh, they're very important, but they're not everything. Talk about the, the, the personality of Ronald Reagan, though, uh, the, the downfall of the Soviet Union and his relationship <laughs> with, with Russian leaders. Again, another topic that's hotly debated amongst historians. To what extent did the United States policies under, under Reagan lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union? Was it Star Wars? Was it American technology? Um, there was a personal relationship between Reagan and Gorbachev. Uh, Gorbachev found Reagan a bit mystifying at first because he, he's a very congenial man, but he also seemed a bit out of touch with some of the details of, of negotiations. Uh, <laughs> Again, sounds familiar. It, it, it does it, a bit. Uh, but but Reagan, was, Reagan had a few very clear ideas of where he wanted to lead the country. And he had been in politics for, what, three, four decades. Unlike Mr. Trump, he had, you know, he'd run a state. He'd been a two-time sure. governor. Uh, he'd been in trade unions. He'd been in Hollywood. He, he had some very clear ideas of what he wanted the world – the way he wanted the world to work. And one of his clear ideas was that the Soviet Union was on its last legs. Did he bring it about? No, he didn't. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed from a host of reasons, mo almost all of which were internal, some of which were external. And, and American policy certainly pushed what was what the decaying system to collapse. But to see everything in terms of Reagan and Gorbachev is, I think, sort of simplistic. It was important. The fact that they were able to talk to one another probably averted what could have been a crisis. I mean, after all, the collapse of an empire peacefully it was almost unthinkable. Uh, certainly at the time, I didn't think it was possible for the Soviet Union to collapse without major wars erupting. Uh, they managed that, and and part of that is personality. Uh, part of it, part of it is also uh, interests. Uh, th there was no interest to be served in, on the part of the Soviet Union to have a world war to preserve in, its holdings in Eastern Europe. But there were people in the Soviet government who wanted. Uh, some kind of conflict. We now know this from the Politburo records. They said, if not now, then when? And so personality can be very important. And a, a sort of welcoming on the other side was significant. The fact that Reagan, for all of his harsh anti-communist rhetoric, when it came right down to it, was willing to discuss things with a guy like Gorbachev was important. It was significant, historically. And Putin witnessed all of that Yes. First in Germany, up close and personal. <laughs> yeah, he was in Dresden at the time. Yeah, he was the the head of the uh, intelligence in the KGB in 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 East Germany. Uh, in Dresden, yeah, yeah. It, it was not, it was a, a branch office, but yeah, he and he certainly he saw he, he devoted his life to the KGB and to the the empire, and he saw it collapse, and he has referred to it since as the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the twentieth century. So he does not see the, Soviet, the collapse of the Soviet Union or of the East European bloc as being a good thing. He sees it as a bad thing. And there, I, I don't think he's attempting to recreate the USSR as it was. But he'd like to recreate Russia with the geostrategic space that it dominated at that time. He sees that as Russia's destiny, really. 
You mean geographic space or, or political space? Uh, well, both. I, I think um, in, in the sense of uh, the, the Russian, Russians refer to what they call the geostrategic space of Russia. And, and what they mean is Russia and the countries in its environs. They see this as, as a sphere of Russian interests. And um, they would like to dominate the, the, the neighboring countries. Uh, they're, they're fairly clear about this in, in their press that these are areas of uh, seen to be vital interests of, of Russia, Ukraine being one of them, uh, the Baltics being another, and uh, and and the Far East as well. You know, we we've been talking in in American politics about our, our relationship with North Korea as though it only involves us, North Korea, and maybe the Chinese. Russia has a border with Korea. And Russia at, at various times has been the principal supplier of Korean weaponry. Um, they have an interest in Korea. And uh, it'll be interesting what Mr. Trump and, and uh, Mr. Putin have to say about that. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. President Trump talked about sanctions mm -hmm. uh, the other day when he was backing things off and you know, uh, we, we've got enough sanctions and we don't really want more. And, and yet Congress, uh, with an overwhelming vote of both houses, uh, gave him a new <laughs> mandate for sanctions, uh, which he waited around, waited around, did a little bit, but, but really hasn't effectuated fully. Uh, Talk about the, the sanctions and the impact that has and what Trump is trying to say with that if he's trying to do personal negotiation. Well, the sanctions have been significant. Uh, the Russian economy is weak. People look at, this, at Russia and think, well, it's a big country. It must have a big economy. In fact, it's smaller than the Italian economy. Even, even for all of its size. Uh, it's somewhere on the level of Spain in terms of overall GDP, and it's 65th in the world in terms of per capita GDP. So it's down with some very much underdeveloped countries. So it's not a rich country. Um, 
However, it's involved in all of many of its neighbors. You have Russian uh, Russian invasion of Georgia. They still occupy some portions of what is at least formally recognized as Georgia. You have Russian troops in, in Moldova. And you have, obviously, Russian troops in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine. And they invaded Crimea and annexed it. And that's the first time since the Second World War in Europe that borders have been changed by force. Uh, this is significant. And, and the sanctions were slapped down as a result, in part because of that. There were, there were others before then with Magnitsky and the murder of, sure. of uh, um, people within Russia. But the, the serious sanctions came about because of the invasion of Crimea and the annexation of Crimea. And people in Europe who were very reluctant to have any sanctions at all on Russia went along with those because they, they saw this as it is, as a very serious challenge to the international order. To talk about undoing them because you want to get along with Mr. Putin is, well, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't, as you say, Congress isn't probably going right. to let it happen. But it's also astonishingly naive. That, that if you give up leverage, you have a better dealing position? Yes. I mean, what, what happens if Mr. Putin says, well, thank you very much and continues doing what he's doing? I think in, in, in the case of Ukraine, which is I, in probably our principal security worry in Europe, he's got his head into a bag that he's not easily going to get out of. Uh, there have been some serious war crimes committed in eastern Ukraine. If he abandons this and these come to light and people start investigating them, they're going to demand some kind of justice and uh, it's going to put him on his back foot. I don't think he's going to give up eastern Ukraine uh, easily. And if we were to just simply relax sanctions, he certainly wouldn't. He's not going to give up the Crimea. Uh, it, that's overwhelmingly popular in Russia, and there's, I don't see why he should, would be compelled to do it. But you asked about the impact mm -hmm. of the sanctions. The sanctions have had a big impact on the Russian economy, uh, which declined for, I think, three years in a row. Its GDP declined for three years in a row. It's now, now growing, but very, very slowly. But this has come along at the same time that oil went from $150 a barrel down to the 40s, and I guess it's now crept up to the low, low 50s. Right. But it, this is still below what Russia needs in order to pay its bills. So this is a country that is economically on the ropes. And it has other crises that are too numerous to go into, a demographic crisis, an age crisis, um, alcoholism. Uh, One-fifth of all Russian males die from alcohol-related disease. This is a, a country in crisis. Still organized crime problems. Still and organized, and crime. organized crime, maybe not as we perceive it, but... Uh, government sanctions, sure. organized organized crime, or related to government. Yeah, there have been a number of of murders of people who've gotten too close to investigating corruption in Russia, and it's as you say, quasi state sanctioned. All right. So, if President Trump, let's let's play this out a little bit. If President Trump is talking about, okay, uh, Putin personally believes this, but. Uh, uh, it, you know, we we need to back off on the sanctions, and and it seems fairly transparent to a layperson like me that what he's trying to do is sweeten the pot so that Russia will jump in and be America's ally uh, with North Korea, maybe become America's ally even more in Syria, uh, as opposed to having conflicting interests. Uh, I think that's what he's going for. Is that is that your assumption as well? I, I, I guess I guess it is. Uh, <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I, 
it's hard to know. Uh, the, the, the problem with with chopping and shifting policies, and so far, I, I should say, so far, Trump hasn't done that. So far, there's been a lot of continuity in American policy, even under Trump. But what he's talking about is is quite disturbing. If you make some kind of deal with Putin, I, I don't know how such a deal would be crafted. But some people, at least, if we make a deal with the Russians, people that we have backed and people we've backed for good reason are going to get hurt. In Syria, for example, we uh, cooperated with the Kurds in order to get rid of ISIS. What's going to happen to the Kurds? The Turks are certainly not their friends. The Iranians aren't their friends. The Iranians they, are backed by the Russians. They seem to have no friends. They seem to have no friends. <laughs> so so in, in, it's in the end, what we've used them and then now having used them, we're going to abandon them. The same is true in Ukraine. If we're going to make a deal with Putin, what do you, at, who, at whose expense is this deal going to come? At the Ukrainians' expense. Um, there's costs to doing business with Mr. Putin on Putin's terms. And, and how much, even if there is a deal struck, how much would Putin be willing to do with <laughs> North Korea and with Syria and, and with uh, the other countries? That, that's a real question, is it not? It is. I, I think in the case of, of North Korea, the degree to which the Russians help in terms of weaponry is fairly minimal. They, they have helped apparently with rocket engines and missiles. Um, but in terms of armaments, not so much. Uh, first of all, the Russians don't have a lot to give away. Secondly, if you look at uh, North Korean tanks, some of them are T-34s, which have not been produced since the 1950s. So this, this is old Russian <laughs> weaponry. Um, I don't think you're going to get much there. You, you might they, – they did export some coal to Russia, but Russia has plenty of coal. It, it doesn't need anything from, from the, uh, the North Koreans. Really, China has all the leverage over North Korea. Russia has a border with North Korea and Russia mm -hmm. has an interest in North Korea, but it doesn't have – it doesn't have a great deal of, of leverage over them, I don't think. So let's talk about China for a moment. <clears throat> I know that's not your area <laughs> of expertise, but it certainly is related. Uh, China is certainly a major economic player uh, around the world. Uh, we've talked with people that say that it is the number one economic player in Africa mm -hmm. uh, at, at this point. Uh, with the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Accord, it's taking over the economic market in climate change and, and environmental uh, matters. Uh, it's certainly powerful in its region, but spreading its economic power globally. What's that do to a Soviet Union, or excuse me, to Russia? It's an easy slip. slip. Yeah. What's what's that do to Putin and Russia, who are still trying to do territorial uh, gains with with their neighbors. I mean, it seems to be – China seems to be light years ahead of where Russia is right now. Is that Certainly economically mistake? speaking. Uh, absolutely economically speaking, that's the case. In terms of gaining territory, I wouldn't give China a pass on that one as they dredge up most of the South China Sea and push the borders up to the Philippines. Uh, they're, they're being quite pushy in, ter in territorial terms, particularly when it comes to, to the waters to the southeast of their country. Um, but the, the, the degree to which Russia and China can cooperate is that's, that's somewhat minimal. Uh, first of all, they have border disputes too. 
the Russians uh, in, in the late 19th century grabbed a portion of northeastern China, and the Chinese have never really forgotten that. And it's lightly populated, uh, and it's, the, the Chinese are, as you say, ascending in economic terms and in military terms, and the Russians are clearly descending in both. And that's an imbalance that uh, might be a problem in the future. Uh, th there have been all sorts of noises about the co collaboration between Russia and China. They talk a great deal, and not much yet has come about because of that, because their interests run too counter to one another. They also have a rivalry going on in Central Asia in, in the countries that used to be portions of the Soviet Union, like Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, where the uh, Chinese are trying to build a new sort of Silk Road uh, to connect with, with uh, the West, and both in, in rail and in roads. And this is interfering in what the Russians, again, see as their geostrategic space. There's also the question of oil. That, that area has a lot of oil. And the Russians have always benefited from that. Uh, the Chinese don't have a lot of domestic sources of oil, and they're pushing into Central Asia as a way to assure their energy access. So there, there are flashpoints with the Russians that prevent them from getting all that close. Putin sees the U.S. as an enemy. Hmm. Or a rival, yeah. Yeah, either term. Does he view the Chinese the same way? Not formally, not, not that he says, but um, there's a longstanding fear of China in Russia, and, and it goes way back. But uh, th th this is – they border with a country that is teeming with human population, <laughs> and Siberia is empty. It, I've, I've been through Siberia. I've gone on the Trans-Siberian Railway, and I don't think I've ever had a stronger cultural shock than going from one day in what is essentially a European country to another day, empty by the way, largely empty, to the next day seeing the place teeming with human beings, all of whom are, are Asian. Uh, it, it, you have this dy dynamic, heavily populated, expanding country next to a country that's largely a vacuum. And you know, historically, that's, that, that can be a problem. I want to shift gears a little bit and, and we'll wrap it up here pretty soon. But, but um, the whole idea of cyber warfare now and the, the idea of uh, disruption mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, perhaps other forms of, of cyber warfare, certainly we have hacking and, and other things like that. Has Putin grabbed hold of that as the, a, a means to counteract a lack of economic power, perhaps, uh, uh, therefore military power, uh, as seen this as a, a new battlefront? Absolutely. In fact, they're explicit about this. The, the, the Russian army, about six or eight months ago, I forget the exact date, published its new doctrine. And one of its elements of this new doctrine was using this as a way of getting around Western dominance in the technological and military fields. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but yesterday, Theresa May denounced Putin precisely yes. for doing in, in Western Europe what he's been accused of and what Trump feels he's uh, annoyed at in, in the United States. Um, the Russian election interference. Election interference, yeah. exactly. And, and pun, uh, uh, pumping money into uh, political parties that are disruptive. Um, yes, the Russians see this as a way of defeating stronger military powers. Uh, there's no way that they, can, they could confront the United States and its allies head on in, in a conventional war. They, they would lose it. 
Um, they don't have the air power. They don't have the sea power. They don't have the manpower. But in a low-level conflict or a low-level rivalry like this, they can cause a great deal of disruption and keep the pot boiling. The, the, the point, I think, of, of, of Russian foreign policy is to prevent the United States from consolidating and becoming comfortable in its position as a hegemonic power. And you can keep, if you can keep the United States off balance in a number of places, then it can't push Russia around. Uh, it, this is a way just of keeping America off balance and, and going after its alliances. And they're, they're quite successful, in, particularly in Turkey. Uh, which, which is oh, a NATO yeah. ally after all. But uh, right now, I think I, I don't know where it stands, but just recently we were not giving visas to Turks and Turks were not giving visas to Americans and Erdogan's talking about expelling the Americans from Interlik Air Base. This is a, the, the largest army other than the Americans in NATO. And suddenly its disposition is uncertain and it's buying anti-aircraft missiles from Russia. This whole idea of keeping uh, America off balance seems to have come to fruition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and perhaps we haven't seen the end of it or even the magnitude of it right. at, at this point. Well, I think that the calculation on the part of the Russians is that the United States is technologically and materially strong, socially weak. And so you can play on this uh, socially and politically weak. Uh, and so you can play on those weaknesses in order to prevent the military uh, element from being predominant. You're a, a student of history and contemporary history specifically. What should we as the average citizen be looking for in the next six months, next year, next two years in, in Russian-U.S. relations? Or what should we be anticipating from Putin? What, what should we have our antenna up about? By the way, uh, I, I think he's made this calculation that the United States is, is culturally and socially weak. I think he's wrong. And I think uh, authoritarian rulers in the past have misjudged democracies. You can push democracies around for a while. It, it was done with the, the British and the French during the 1930s. They tend to snap back when their vital interests are threatened. And they're actually quite a bit more powerful than authoritarian regimes when it comes to mobilizing power. So I think he's miscalculating. Again, again, back to this notion that he's a, he's a clever tactician. I think strategically he's, he's going down a blind hole. What should we expect in the future? Um, the consolidation of the Assad regime, for one thing. Uh, the, the, the elimination of ISIS has allowed uh, Assad to slip through the net. And now the Russians and the Iranians and the Turks are talking about how to dispose of Syrian territory. And the Americans are left out of, out of the circle. Uh, we, we base, uh, uh, Trump basically did make a big change in, in Syria right. by abandoning the, the anti-Assad forces. So I think you're going to see that. And that will consolidate Russia's position. It's also going to consolidate Iran's position with an arc from Iran itself all the way to the Mediterranean. Uh, I think we, we should watch very closely what's going to happen in, in Ukraine. I think that the Russians would like to get out of it with as, as little cost as possible. But they don't know how to get out of it. Uh, they, they want to keep Ukraine, uh, to keep uh, Crimea, but yeah. to get out of eastern Ukraine. And, and yet I don't think it's easy for them to extricate themselves. What I've always thought, though, the, the place that we should look for trouble 
would be in the Baltic states. If the United States acts unilaterally in Korea, which you know, again, we're back to Trump, I, I, I simply don't know what Trump is going to do. But if we were to act unilater unilaterally in Korea, I would expect something to happen in the Baltic states. And this would be the way Russia thinks. It thinks in traditional terms, which is you move there, we're compensated here. And that compensation would uh, give them geographic territory, it'd give Could them well. uh, wealth, it'd give them uh, uh, cultural superiority in, in their mind instead of saying, well, that guy in North Korea is a, a nut job anyway. We won't, we won't mess with him. We'll give him some lip service, but we won't get in U.S. Yeah. way. But while the U.S. is doing it's that, busy. We, We're gonna we, do, we yeah. need to, to, to consolidate some of our. Yeah, the, the, this is, the, the Russians have done this traditionally, which is move into areas that are in dispute when the world is looking elsewhere. It, it's, the Russians aren't unique in that. Right. Other right, great right, powers right. do the same thing. But the Russians have a genuine argument in, in, in the Baltics because uh, particularly Estonia and Latvia have significant Russian populations. The Russian populations are not badly treated, but the Russians could claim that they are and use that as a reason to intervene as they have in Ukraine with the Russian population in eastern Ukraine. So that's that's a worry and, and it's a persistent worry. And certainly the Baltic states are, are worried. The, the, the three Baltic states, I believe, I'd have to check this, but I think they're the only three states uh, in, in NATO other than the United States that have met their commitment to spend a certain percentage of their GDP. They're, they're very worried about it. As are, so as are Finland and Sweden as well. One last quick question. Uh, Theresa May's uh, comments yesterday, um, toothless tiger. Uh, what? You mean Theresa May herself? Well, uh, well uh, she's yeah, not, she doesn't, doesn't look have, like a very powerful character yeah, at the moment. It, they, it, she sort of said those and everybody just sort of went – yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> went on with their business. Well, Britain right now is in a curious position, isn't it? It's it's decided that it's going to leave Europe. Um, I don't know what that's going to do ultimately to its voice in international affairs, but I can't think that it enhances it in the EU itself. And so when May says these things, people will listen to it, I assume respectfully, and move on. Um, I think she must have said this in large part in response to what Trump was saying. Um, there is a, a, a level of collaboration between the United States. There is a special relationship with the sure, British. Absolutely. Um, you know, we always deny it or say it's dead yeah. or whatever. In fact, there's a real close cooperation militarily and in term, intelligence terms with the British. And I think what she was saying is, look, we know we have the goods on, on this guy. Um, GCHQ is as effective at monitoring what's going on electronically in the world as anything anywhere in the world. And they know if the Russians are interfering in Western Europe. And so I think she was laying down a marker and saying, OK, Putin may be denying it, but we know that he's done these things. And you're right. May's politically very weak, and I don't know what's going to happen to the government. Uh, they're racked by their own sex scandals, by the way. I don't know yeah, if you've been following right. that. But it's like Hollywood on, on the Thames. Um, <laughs> I don't know what's going to come there of, of, of May, and she's very weak, but I think that what she was saying was reflecting what her intelligence services are saying, which is, no, we know we've got the goods on Mr. Putin. Dr. Miner, thank you so much. It's always great to talk to you and, and get uh, some Russian insight. <laughs> well, thank you. Today, we've been talking with author and professor Dr. Stephen Miner, the director of the Contemporary History Institute at Ohio University. We've been talking about the current state of Russia and U.S. relations.
Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments whatsoever about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.